The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, even this morning we recognize our lack of submission to you, even in the small things. That you've called us to be humble servants of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've given us the Holy Spirit to dwell on in us that we might be those faithful servants. And yet, with each passing day, we realize so much of our flesh continues to reign in us. We ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would do a mighty work here, that you would not only enable us to understand how it was that Paul was able to commit his life so faithfully to your work, but that we would see, Lord, that we've been called to that same work, indwelt by that same Spirit, and equipped by you to be the faithful, humble servants you have made us to be in our union with Christ. We want you to be glorified during this time as we proclaim the gospel from this passage. We want you to be glorified, Lord, in the lives of this church, every single life here that knows you in full submission to your spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do a work this morning amongst us, uh, that you would help us to listen closely, that you would cause our minds and hearts not to be distracted. But instead, Holy Spirit, Do a work that you can do right now. Help us to hear, help us to believe, and help us to walk in righteousness. We want to be slaves of righteousness for your sake and your glory, knowing also that it is best for us. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. Um, I, I hope that you never hear... Scripture read about the Apostle Paul and get discouraged. I hope you don't say, I, I can't be like that. Uh, I want to be like that, but I can't. That is not a true statement. Paul is a servant of Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, just as you are. So let's listen to this passage today with great encouragement and ask the Holy Spirit to do the same work in us that we might be the same humble spirit-filled saints that Paul was. Um. Most Americans today, if you're 16 and under, I'm giving a break to those who are 16 and older, but maybe this applies to you too, I pray not. Um, most Americans have been raised to believe that any constraints of any kind, regardless if they're internal or external, are a violation of our personal freedoms and therefore they are always wrong. Constraints are always wrong. The 1971 Broadway musical Grease popularized this worldview in its title song, By speaking, actually, they were singing against the conventions of the day, the conventional values. Listen to the lyrics. Their lips are lying. Only real is real. We stopped the fight right now. We got to be what we feel. We take the pressure and we throw it away. Conventionality belongs to yesterday. There is a chance that we can make it so far. We start believing now that we can be who we are. That was in 1971, so fast forward 51 years later, that play has been done multiple times, just recently again on Broadway, and that worldview now permeates the American culture, and I would say we are less free today than we were 50 years ago in light of this teaching. No constraints, no boundaries, no restrictions of any kind, and the culture tells you, as the play told us, then and only then can we be who we are. But what if the opposite is actually true? 
What if what if what is really real is the opposite of this teaching? What if the constraints of the Bible, the internal constraints the Bible talks about on the human heart, actually sets us free? And what if those constraints, instead of leading to the suppression of personal identity, actually captivate the heart in a most beautiful way, leading to the cultivation of personal identity? So that fallen man, instead of being enslaved to sin, as we know, can live as the God-created image bearers that we were made to be. What if these constraints led to true freedom? True biblical freedom. Freedom that enabled a Supreme Court nominee to answer a simple question as, what is a woman? Or when does life begin? That type of freedom that provides real truth in real time. Constraints of the heart by the Spirit that lead to real goodness and real beauty and real actual human flourishing. Well, if we had a constraint like that, most people, believers or not, would say, we would like to have that. We'd like to have that ability to be able to live as you just described. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is addressing the elders from Ephesus. It's his third and final speech in the book. His his third and uh, most lengthy, actually, of the other three. He's addressing it to Christians, specifically to the elders of Ephesus. It's a farewell speech, but if you if you heard it being read, at least the part that we're doing today, it sounds like an epistle, right? I mean, Paul, he's, he's teaching one more time to these elders. He wants to talk to them about their life in Christ, and he's going to highlight the constraining power of the Holy Spirit, why it's so good to be constrained by the Holy Spirit. And the, this farewell speech is broken up into two parts. We're going to do part one today. The two parts are he, he talks about the, the power of the Holy Spirit to enable all Christians to live as ministers of the gospel, And then secondly, how pastors are to serve as loving under-shepherds of God's people. If you want to know what I'm supposed to be doing and what Kirk's supposed to be doing, come next Sunday. I'm going to tell you what our job description is according to this passage. But this week, this morning, what I'd like to focus on is your calling to be a faithful witness and testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at verses 13 through 24 and um, by God's grace, see how the Holy Spirit has enabled you to live like Paul. Not envy Paul, not covet Paul's ministry, but to live like Paul by being, number one, servants of the Lord, number two, followers of the Spirit, and number three, accountants of our own lives. All right, you say, I want, I want, to, I want to serve like Paul served. I want to run the race well. We need to be servants of the Lord, followers of the Spirit, and accountants of our own lives. And I'll explain what that last one means. It's probably a bit confusing. The theme of the sermon is simple. Listen, a life constrained by the Holy Spirit is the best life to live. Did you hear that? A life constrained by the Holy Spirit is the best life to live. It is the most freeing life to live. It is the most glorifying life to live. Therefore, we ought to want to live it. Amen? All right, I didn't lose you yet, did I? All right, number one, servants of the Lord. So we're about three years total time in Ephesus, in and around Ephesus, and it's time for Paul to go. He's being led by the Holy Spirit, as you know, to go to Jerusalem to start to make his way there. But in typical Pauline fashion, instead of taking a ship and going directly to Jerusalem, he leaves Troas. He says, no, i got to go visit the churches again. And so he heads northwest in a counterclockwise direction, and he makes his way through places like Thyatira and, and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea until he gets back to Corinth, 
And then when he hits Corinth, he does an about face and he heads northeast and he circles back around the Aegean Sea again until he gets to this place called Asos. And at Asos, which was a coastal city in Asia, uh, just south of Troas, uh, remember Troas is where Eutychus last week we saw was raised from the dead. From, from this place, Paul, Timothy, Luke, and the others, they catch a ship and they begin to make their way toward Jerusalem. Um, he doesn't stop and say goodbye to the church at Ephesus or the elders, um, which is somewhat surprising, but we're told why. Look at verse 16. We're told why he didn't. He wasn't being rude. He loved them deeply. Verse 16, he says, he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So that Pentecost was late May, and so we're depending upon the length of time it would take him to get there. We're probably sometime in March or April. And so he wants to get there for Pentecost. And so he doesn't stop. He doesn't go to Ephesus and say goodbye. But what he does do, he gets to uh, Miletus at, at 45, 44 miles or so due south of Ephesus. And at, Mil- at Miletus, it tells us in verse 17, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then in verse 18 it says, and they what? And they came. And they came. So he's there, this deep love for the Ephesian church. He knew that he probably wasn't going to see him again. That on this side of heaven, that this was probably going to be the last time he had a chance to speak truth and encourage them. And so this is a farewell address similar to, think of Joshua or Samuel in the Old Testament as they said goodbye to uh, the nation of Israel. Think of Jesus at the Lord's Supper when he was saying goodbye to the disciples. This is in that vein. Paul wants one more opportunity to encourage and instruct the elders at Ephesus to remain steadfast. And then he says, listen, follow in my footsteps. Do as I did. Serve as I served. Look at verse 18. He actually develops three characteristics, none of which are going to be surprising to you, several of which we've already talked about. So we're going to do this briefly, but I want you to think deeply about these. Three characteristics that define the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Verse 18. And they, that's the elders of Ephesus, they came to him, And he said to them, you yourselves know that I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of Jews. So this first characteristic that Paul talks about is his humble service. He was a humble servant before the Lord. In fact, we we see in Paul's epistles, he uses this term a lot. The term in the Greek actually can mean slave, and he talks, himself, talks about himself as a bond slave to God, as a bond slave to Christ. One who was truly, listen, one who was truly submitted to the service of the Lord, to the service of his king. Right? Paul recognized Jesus as a king. He sits on the throne. He's a servant of the king, and therefore he wanted to live like that. Now, before you critique Paul too much and say, well, isn't it kind of arrogant to talk about your humility? Right? I mean, usually when people are talking about how humble they are, they're probably not all that humble. Right? This is not, though, this is not a self-exalting statement. Paul's not saying, look at how humble I am in my lack of humility. It is a statement of fact. Look at verse 18 again. He said, the whole time I was with you, what did you see? You saw me serving. Now, this is the apostle Paul. This is the man who was called by God on the road to Damascus to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And yet, with all of his authority, he did not use it to lift himself up or to be abusive. Instead, as the apostle Paul, he served. And he served humbly. He served them in love. 
even amidst, it said, all the tears and all the trials, and all, also, by the way, the attempted assassinations, Paul said, never did I grow bitter, never did I say I want a better life. Paul was a humble servant in service to Christ the King. In fact, he was doing what he would later call the Philippians to do from his prison in Rome, Philippians 2, 3, Paul was living this out. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others, what? More significant than yourselves. Okay, so one of the first defining characteristics of Paul's ministry in Ephesus was humble servanthood. He was a humble servant of the Lord. The second characteristic that he gives us is that he was a faithful proclaimer of the things of God. His faithful proclamation. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I did not, he's recalling now his time with them. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. In other words, Paul held nothing back. He was not concerned about his ego or his popularity. He was not concerned what his words might do against him, the persecution, the trials, the tears, the attempted assassinations. He was concerned about declaring and teaching to them the truths of God's word. Right? He wanted to grow them in the faith. So he was a true truth teller, someone who declared the truth not for his own glory, but for the glory of God, for the people that they might grow in their faith. So Paul was a humble servant. He was a faithful proclaimer of the truths of God. The third characteristic we see here in verse 21 is that he was one, he preached a gospel of inclusion, of inclusion. Look at verse 21. He said, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was not inclusion at the expense of the word of God or the law of God as we see so many churches doing today. So many churches are trying to include people in the church by forsaking the word of God, by teaching the church that we can do that which God forbids and still be in God's good pleasure. He was not doing that. He was not catering to a progressive liberal agenda. He was calling all people everywhere to what? To repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Right? He was proclaiming the gospel to everyone. Why was Paul doing that? Because Paul realized that every human being is an image bearer of God. Every single one. And every human being is created by God and will be judged by God. And therefore, unless every human being he came into contact with, unless they wanted to enjoy an eternity of damnation, he realized that they needed to be reconciled to God, and that came through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he proclaimed the gospel. This is what Paul did. So these three defining characteristics of Paul's ministry, humble service, listen closely because this is your calling too, humble service, faithful proclamation, and gospel inclusion. He wants the elders to do the same, and he wants to teach the believers in Ephesus to do the same. Humble service instead of prideful gain, truth-telling instead of cowardice silence. Let that resonate just a bit, my beloved. Truth-telling instead of cowardice, silence, and inclusion instead of exclusion when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine just for a minute, imagine a local body of believers who embraced and lived out these three characteristics of ministry. What would that body be like? Imagine a church, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna embrace these three characteristics. We're gonna be humble servants one to another. We're gonna faithfully proclaim the gospel to one another, God's truth, and we're gonna include the gospel to all on the outside. Humble service, truth-telling, and inclusion. I would say it would be such an extraordinary family that you would want to be here all the time and you'd want to invite people to come and participate. 
a family that really, really, really puts the needs of others above their own. Really does. Not, we don't just say it on Sunday, because that's what we say as Christians, right? Oh, I'll pray for you. I care about you. I'll help you. I'll see you next Sunday. Our greatest desire being to serve others instead of being served. That's how Paul lived. A family where boasting and pride does not exist. And it cannot exist because we all know ourselves and we all see each other as what? As sinners saved by pure, unmerited grace. And that's the family you want to be in, right? Where we see ourselves as those who were deserving of hell but have been granted forgiveness and salvation through the king. A family, maybe maybe we wouldn't like this too much. A family that truly speaks the truth to one another in love. Not remaining silent all the time out of fear of rejection or I want to keep the peace or I don't want them to get mad at me. Kirk talked about this last week. A place where God's word is spoken regularly. Always on our lips. When we gather, when we pray, when we eat. We're always speaking the truths of God. Kirk gave us a, a great little acronym last week. Do you remember it? The ACT acronym that we are constantly what? We are affirming one another. And what we see, we are correcting one another when sin is present, and we're telling one another of all the great things that God is doing in our lives. That's supposed to be part of this family of God. Imagine a family that holds fast to God's word. We will not compromise upon his law or his precepts, and yet at the same time, we will share the gospel with everyone we know. We won't compromise on the law of God but we won't isolate the gospel to those that we think will repent and we think will believe. What a place this would be. I would say it would be a little manifestation of heaven on earth when local churches live according to these three characteristics. What, you know what our greatest complaints would be? In a place like this where we were collectively, humbly serving one another, where we were speaking the truth to one another in love and we were sharing the gospel with everyone we know? Our greatest complaints would be this. My wife won't let me serve her in love enough. She keeps wanting to serve me, and I want to serve her. What a great problem. What a great pastoral problem. Come to us with that. Or how about this? My brother in Christ won't rebuke me in my sin even though he knows I'm sinning. Or maybe I'm running out of people to share the gospel with. Do you have any friends I can talk to? That would be a place that would be similar to Paul's ministry in Ephesus. That's the type of place that we want to cultivate here. This is how Paul lived when he, when he was with the Ephesians for three years, so this wasn't an in and out. And he lived like that because that's how Christ lived. Right, this wasn't, listen, Paul wasn't writing these three ministry characteristics for a new book he was gonna publish once he got to Jerusalem, okay? He was not going to get on the, the writing circuit that way. He was simply following the footsteps of Jesus. How did Christ live? He was a humble servant, was he not? He spoke the truth of God's word to anyone who would listen, and he included the gospel to Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and master. Absolutely fantastic. This is our calling too, you individually and we collectively, to be humble servants before the Lord, proclaiming the truth that we might build each other up, and yes, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul said, to all those in our mission field, to those here in the Cambrian Park community. Now, I would imagine if you've been in church any time or you've read your Bible, you're saying to, to me politely, lovingly in your heart, there's nothing revelatory about this, Pastor. We know this. We're no, we know we're supposed to be humble servants. 
We know that we're supposed to speak the truth to one another in love, and we know we're supposed to share the gospel. Okay, so the problem very likely in your heart and mind right now is not knowledge. You know this. The problem is what? It is desire, isn't it? It is power. It is you saying, I know, but I'm not. I want to, but not really. I want other things more than living as Paul lived. So it's a motivation issue. So the question is, how do we change that? I mean, how can the testimony of your life, of our lives, be like that of Jesus and of Paul and of every faithful saint throughout the century who truly submitted to the Holy Spirit. I don't you want to leave here like that today? I do. I don't want you going, okay, I know these three characteristics, but I don't know how to do it. We want to know how to do it. We want to know where the power comes from. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. The followers of the Spirit. Now, usually think of followers of those who follow Christ, but I, I use that word followers because this is the submission of the Spirit's leading. The Spirit leads, and therefore what? We are to follow. We're to follow. We're not, we don't lead the Spirit. He's to lead us. So after Paul reminds the Ephesians of, of his ministry work there, giving all credit and honor and glory to God, he then turns to the present. Look at verse 22, and he says this. He says, and now behold. Right? And that, that word is, he's trying to grab their attention. He says, look at what is about to happen. Not just that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, but behold, he says, I am constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So as Paul is trying to explain to them why he's going to, they don't want him to go, they don't want him afflicted, they don't want him put to death. So as he's trying to explain to them why he's making this decision to go to a place where he may experience pain, suffering, and even death, we get, Luke gives us, through the Holy Spirit, a look into Paul's heart. A look into the working of Paul's mind and conscience and decision-making process. Of why he could live as he lived, as a humble, faithful servant of Christ. Paul says in verse 22 again, he was constrained by the Spirit to go. Some of your translations render it, he was compelled by the Spirit to go. Uh, some of it say he was bound by the Spirit to go. Bound, actually, literal binding, like slavery. That's the most literal translation, but it's not in a negative sense. Usually when we think of binding, like the song in Greece, we think of something that's keeping us from being who we are supposed to be. It's just the opposite with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit binds you to be the person that God made you to be. The Holy Spirit wanted Paul to go, the Holy Spirit dwelt in Paul and had captivated Paul's heart, and therefore what? Paul's ultimate desire in the Spirit was to go too. Right? So he was constrained, but in the most beautiful, positive way. And what we're getting a picture of in the life of Paul that I want us to capture here, and hence the title of the sermon, is a Spirit-filled life. Right? What does it mean to live a Spirit-filled life? We talk about that a lot, especially as evangelicals. We talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's a gift from God upon salvation, and that you are to walk by faith in the Spirit, not by the flesh. Well, what does that really look like? Paul identified himself back in verse 19 as a servant of the Lord. Again, that word can be translated slave of the Lord. We don't like to use that in modern day translations because we have a negative connotation of slavery. But being a slave to the Spirit of God is the best place to be. You want to be a slave to the Spirit of God because that will make you a slave to what? Righteousness. 
And that's how we ought to want to live. So here we're told that he is he's bound as a slave. So he's a slave in verse 19. And here he says that he, he's constrained by the Spirit. The word bound, I think, is best. That he's constrained, he's bound by the Spirit to do that which, at least from a worldly perspective, either seems foolish or dangerous. Or maybe both. He says, I'm bound to go, verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there. He says, I don't, I don't know what the outcome is. And oftentimes, my beloved, we don't do things because we don't know the outcome. Right? It's kind of an interesting thing, right? We're supposed to walk by faith. Well, walking by faith doesn't mean you know what the outcome is. If you know what the outcome is, it doesn't require a lot of faith, right? So Paul, on the one hand, says, I don't, I don't know what the outcome is, but he has a good idea. Look at the latter part of verse 22 and 23. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so this is fascinating. The Holy Spirit, at the exact same time, is saying to Paul, you got to go, and it's probably going to be bad. You got to go to Jerusalem. I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And when you get there, tears, suffering, persecution, imprisonment, and maybe death. So Paul, Paul, when Paul says, I don't know, he does, he's probably saying, I don't know the extreme. I don't know how bad it's going to be. But the Spirit's testifying to him everywhere that it's going to be imprisonment and affliction of some kind. This is not a mixed message, my beloved. The Spirit isn't s- sending Paul two messages to see if he could figure out what the right one was. It wasn't a guessing game. He's testing Paul's faith. He wants to know if Paul's going to be faithful to heed the constraining calling of the Holy Spirit and go to a place that will bring what? More tears, more suffering. Or will Paul submit to his own flesh? Paul had, a, Paul had been in and around Ephesus for three years. He had a good thing going there. I mean, it was a good place to do ministry. The church was strong. From Ephesus, he was able to circle around the, the Aegean Sea and, and visit all these churches. And so Paul could have said, you know, I'm just going to stay here. And, and listen, I need to be very clear on this. He could have made that choice. When, when it says that he was constrained by the Spirit, it doesn't mean that Paul had no choice, that he absolutely had to go, that his, his conscience was bound against his will. It's not saying that. It is saying that Paul, in the Spirit, wanted to go. He's constrained by the Spirit, and that constraining enables him and equips him to want to go. In fact, we would argue that any constraining that violates the conscience that God is calling us to would be contrary to the gospel of grace, right? You're set free in Christ to follow Christ. Right? So he, if he didn't want to go to Jerusalem, he could have continued his ministry in Asia and Europe, and yet, we would also say that he was bound by the Spirit to go. He said, well, how can it be both? Because his flesh would want one thing, but the Spirit that reigns in his heart wants another, and that wins for Paul. It had won for three years while he was in Ephesus, and it's going to win right now. He's bound by the Spirit to go because of his union with Christ. Right? And that's really the key for us, my beloved. Being united to Christ through repentance and faith, Paul realized he was no longer his own. He wasn't his own. He had been purchased with what? With a price, the precious blood of Jesus. He had been ransomed. Paul had been ransomed out of slavery to sin and death and purchased into the kingdom of righteousness and life. And as a son of God in the kingdom of Christ, he had become what? He had become a slave to righteousness. 
to do what God had called him to do. You do realize, my beloved, you are a slave. We're all slaves of some kind. We all have masters. The only question is, who's your master? Is it God? Through Christ, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if so, praise God, that means you're a slave to righteousness. That means you're a slave to do what is right and what is good and what is beautiful. Or are you a slave to sin? Are you a slave to to be who you want to be according to how you feel, how your flesh feels, what the culture tells you to be. So Paul was a slave to righteousness, not by compulsion, but by choice. Whenever anyone confesses faith in Jesus Christ and you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And the Holy Spirit, until you see Christ and then for all eternity, gives you the desire to live an obedient life, right? You're not only saved out of the darkness, when the Spirit comes, He brings you out of a life of disobedience and makes you a believer who can live a life of obedience, of holiness to God. And He binds us to that. What a, what a great thing to be bound to. Is it not? To say, I, I'm bound to do what is right. I'm bound to love. I'm bound to serve. I'm bound to give. Even in the midst of suffering and pain and many tears, I'm bound to that. Boy, that's a, a binding we as believers should want regardless of the cost involved. And you say, well, I, I still don't get how that happens. You do, though. A captivated heart is bound to its master, right? When your heart is captured, whoever captures it can lead you for better or for worse. If you're captivated by an idol, then that idol will lead you into sin and destruction. If you're captivated by God in Christ, then it will lead you into righteousness through the Spirit. So it's this captivation of the heart that enables Paul to do that which is contrary to his flesh, that which is contrary to the counsel he likely got from the Ephesian elders who said, don't, don't go, You're gonna, it's going to be bad, stay here with us. Reminds me of, of Jesus when he was speaking to Peter, describing the cross, and Peter tried to prevent him from going, and of course we know Jesus said to Peter, get behind thee, Satan. We don't want those words, do we? A captivated heart enables us to live a spirit-filled life. When Kirk and Sarah were, uh, many of you know this because you were there, when they decided to have their wedding ceremony in Sarah's parents' backyard, that area that we gathered in, um, it was covered with bushes and weeds and brush and lots and lots of poison oak. It was everywhere. And so I took Kirk over to the house. He wanted my counsel on how best to clear it. And he said, I'm going to clear this for my bride. And it was a beautiful thought. I thought, how amazing, you, you young man who loves his, his bride-to-be. I could have left him. I'm extremely allergic to poison oak. He's extremely allergic to poison oak. I could have left him. I could have. I was free to go. In fact, he encouraged me to go. So on the one hand, I was free. And at the same time, I was constrained. I was constrained out of my love for him, out of my love for my daughter-to-be to stay, right? So I had a greater power constrained by love. I was constrained in a most wonderful way to ha- help their wedding site be the most beautiful place that we could make it in the period of time that we had. So together, we cleared the site, and together, we contracted lots and lots of poison oak. Now listen, I had no regrets because true love never does, right? Expressions of true love, it never does. I was itchy, but I was happy. So Paul understood how dangerous it was to go to Jerusalem. Like all of us, he didn't desire to suffer. 
He didn't hear the Spirit say that and go, oh, good, more tears, more suffering, more imprisonment. And yet his greater desire was what? It was to be a faithful servant of the Lord to express his love for God by submitting to the Spirit's leading in faith. He really didn't know. He had an idea it was going to be bad, but he went out of love. Galatians 2.20, Paul declares this about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. Here's our life. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ, that's the Spirit of Christ, by the way, the Holy Spirit, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. I live in submission to the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's life. My beloved, our living not by the flesh but by the Spirit means our submitting daily to the will and work of the Spirit regardless of the consequences. Daily, hourly, minute by minute submission. Paul learned this from Christ. Christ was the perfect servant of his Father. And in similar fashion to Paul, this is the similarities are amazing, he set his face to Jerusalem also, did he not? Paul set his face to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was leading him there. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was leading him there, but not simply to go and bring a relief offering to the church and possibly face persecution. Jesus knew he was going there to fulfill the will of God the Father by ascending the cross and paying for the sins of many, for sinners just like us. Now, it wasn't, remember, Jesus is truly man. It wasn't his desire to go and suffer. Jesus knew that was part of the plan. It was the plan of redemption, but it wasn't his heart's desire to go and experience persecution and beatings and humiliation and the crucifixion on the Roman cross. We know that because of his prayer in the garden, do we not? And what does he ask the Father? He says, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so, but thy will be done. So even within our Lord, he had this desire not to experience the the brutality of the cross, and yet the greater desire out of his love for God, out of his love for God the Father, Spirit, and us, he says, but I will go. I will go by the leading of the Spirit to Jerusalem. He was perfectly united. Listen, he was perfectly united to God the Father and, and God the Spirit. He could not not be. He is truly God. And therefore, Jesus went to Jerusalem on the cross because he was constrained out of his love for God the Father, God the Son, and his love for us, the church. He was constrained by that love to go, to submit his life and his body to the most extreme suffering, listen, ever experienced by any man before, during, or since, or ever will be. He bore the full wrath of God the Father for the sins of all who would repent and believe and put their faith in his perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus, listen, here's the good news for you, it was the good news for Paul, because Jesus experienced the worst possible suffering, which was the equivalency of your eternal damnation, separation from the Father, because he experienced that for you, and he grants to you freedom, you can be like Paul. You can understand, as Paul did, that Paul said, I can submit to the Holy Spirit, I can endure whatever suffering comes my way in Jerusalem or in Rome or wherever the Spirit leads me. Not because, now listen, not because Paul was some really brave man in the flesh, but Paul understood that because Jesus had suffered for him on his behalf, no matter what happened to Paul, nothing could really happen to Paul. Do you know that? No matter what happened to Paul in Jerusalem, Jesus had already paid the ultimate price and therefore nothing could really harm Paul. 
more tears, more trials, more suffering, more arrest, more persecution, even death, yes. But what was death for Paul? It was gain because he got to be with Christ. My beloved, if you're united with Christ and the Spirit dwells in you, it's the same for you. It's the same for us. Oh, what a glorious message that is, right? You really, you know, ultimately you're untouchable. You're untouchable, right? What can separate you from the love of Christ? Neither tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. All these Paul got. He received them all. But it did not matter because Christ had paid the ultimate price. And therefore, Paul knew that the love of God in Christ, he could never lose. He could never lose, my beloved. You want power in your life to be bold when the Spirit leads you to do that, which is either unknown or dangerous to you? Well, this is what you need to remember right, that you are in Christ, ultimately untouchable. Because the worst thing that could happen to you, so what, what would be the worst thing? The worst thing would be for me to lose my life. And that would be, right? Ultimately, he said, well, what if I go to this place and I engage in this ministry and they kill me? Well, if you know Christ, the good news is that's good for you. He said, but, but all my family, my friends, and my career, my education, come on, really? Heaven, the presence of the Lord, saints victorious, the angels surrounding the throne, you think that's not going to be better? Foolishness. Paul knew that, and so he was able to go out of his love for the Son. All right. Where am I? (laughs) Uh, The Holy Spirit constrained Paul and Jesus to set their face to Jerusalem, and they went because of their love for God. The Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to do what Jesus did and Paul to do what Paul did, dwells in you. The same person of God. His presence, his power in you. And so we know this, my beloved. If you struggle submitting to the Holy Spirit's clear leading in your life, and most of the time you know what that is. If you struggle, it's not a power issue and it's not a presence of God issue. It's a heart issue. It's your heart issue. You are failing to trust in the one who loves you most. You're failing to trust in the one who knows, listen, and wants what's best for you. And you said, best for me? That's persecution. That's hardship. My friends won't like me. I may lose my job. Maybe. But if you follow Christ in that, that is truly best for you. It is a failure to trust in the one who gave his life for you so that he could have you for eternity. When we struggle submitting to the Spirit, we are struggling to remember the one who promises what? To never leave us or forsake us, especially when things are really, really hard. Right? You want to you test God? Test God like this. In the midst of your suffering, pursue Christ in the Spirit. Do the hard things you're called to do. And when you suffer, ask yourself, is Christ with me? And the answer will be yes, yes, a thousand times yes, because he promised he will never leave you. And that's why, my beloved, most of you know when, you are, when you're experiencing persecution or pain or suffering because of the pursuit of the Spirit, you have that incredible presence of Christ. You're like, why now, Lord? That's what he promised to do. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He will be with you. He will be with you always. So to not follow the clear leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, whether it be in your marriage or your work or with your children or in the church or in your ministry, It is a failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that is foolish, and that is dangerous. Amen? All right. So if you are united with Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and then you are constrained 
by the Spirit of God to, to love and to serve and to do what he's called you to do. Now, I'm coming to my last point. If you're saying, I'm still not, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I mean, I, I know this teaching's true, but simply believing this truth does not make me a humble, truth-telling, gospel-sharing servant of the Lord like Paul. It does not. Pastor, you gotta do better. I don't know that I can, but I'll try one more time. All right, last point. We're called to be servants of the Lord. We're called to be followers of the Spirit. And lastly, we're called to be accountants of our own lives. You know, what, what does that mean? We're suddenly, you know, I know it's tax season. You're thinking IRS, and now the word accountant comes out. Pastor's trying to be weirdly contextual. That's not it. Have you ever wondered why Paul was able to do what he did? Why he was able to live in such a countercultural way? Humbly serving, even though he had been given incredible power by God. Humbly serving all the time. Declaring and proclaiming the word of God to the saved and unsaved, even though that meant for him trouble. It meant hardship for him. He was willing to go to Jerusalem, even though the Holy Spirit said, if you go, when you go, this is what's going to happen. It won't be good. Paul was able to live this bold faith not only because he was constrained by the Holy Spirit who dwelt in him, but now listen. The Apostle Paul was an excellent accountant. Not to do his taxes or your taxes. He was an excellent spiritual accountant to evaluate his own life, his new life in Christ. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. So he already said, the Spirit has told me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer here. But I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now Paul, he's not denying the sanctity of human life by saying that human life is not valuable or precious. He's taking account of his own life, listen, as a servant of Christ as a follower of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was reckoning, he was doing some accounting of where he used to be. Where did Paul used to be before he hit the road to Damascus and Christ came to him? He was a persecutor of the church. Jesus said, you are persecuting me. He was persecuting Christ. He was a hater of God. And, but now he's, he's a sinner saved by grace. Now he's an apostle of God himself. A man who was once dead, completely dead, in rebellion against the king, and now spiritually alive in submission to the king. And so Paul, he's doing the spiritual accounting, and he is saying, how could I claim, how could I claim any right to my life? How could I have any claim to, to my life for myself? In other words, he's saying this, how could I live a precious life in the flesh? Because that's what he means by this precious life or this valuable life. How can I do that which the world wants me to do? Pursuing money or power or prestige or comfort. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to stay comfortable here in Ephesus. Paul's saying, how can I do that? In light of where I was and where I am. In light of the sacrifice that Christ made to redeem a sinner like me out of the darkness and into his kingdom. Now Paul, we know he was a smart, hardworking educated man, he could have gained the world if he so desired. He could have. He could have. Most think that Paul was a genius. But he didn't desire it because he was an excellent spiritual accountant. He knew what Christ did to save him. He knew his new standing as a son in the kingdom. And he knew what he deserved 
and what he was receiving instead. Ephesians 1.18, what was he getting? The riches of Jesus' glorious inheritance. That's what we get in Christ. And so as a result of his ability to account for his life correctly, he was able to do what? We had a chance to sing it. He was able to deny himself all the pleasures of this world, pick up his cross, that was his ministry, and what? And follow Jesus. That's how Paul was able to do it. He was a good spiritual accountant. So the question for you as we close is, what type of spiritual accountant are you? So I don't like numbers at all. You don't need numbers for this work. How well do you evaluate your new life in Christ? Daily? Hourly? Remembering your life before you were born again. Not dwelling on it, but remember it's good, my beloved. Do you remember the sins that you used to be enslaved to? Remember those? And you now know that you were truly enslaved but you, because you could not stop doing them. Remember all the people you used to hurt with your words and with your self-centeredness? Remember all the sin that you engaged in just for the sake of sinning, just because you enjoyed it. Do you remember all that pride in your heart before Christ? It really was all about you, right? The whole world revolved around you before you saw the living God. Failure to account for your life in Christ will lead to you valuing the things of this world and your flesh as supremely precious rather than submitting to the constraining love of the Spirit as a servant of the Lord doing what He wants you to do. You will continue to live your life as someone never born again. We're called to serve others, but if we don't reckon this correctly, we will only serve when it's comfortable. If you only serve when it's comfortable, if you only love when it's not costly, and if you only speak the truth when it's easy and safe, and you know you're not going to get backlash, then, my beloved, you more likely than not are doing an accountant of your life in the flesh rather than of your being born again as a Christian. You'll, you'll claim Christ, but you're still living as an unsaved soul. The hard part about this teaching in the West, in the Western church, is how many people claim to be Christian and still live for themselves instead of Jesus. You know, that's not possible. You, you Actually, I take that back. You can claim to be a Christian, but you're not a Christian if your life is lived just for you or primarily for you instead of service to the Lord. So the question is, how are you auditing yourselves? Do you audit yourselves? Do you, on a regular basis, say, all right, Lord, let's do some deep, hard, painful examination? Here are some questions you might want to consider for that. You don't want to fudge the numbers on this, right? I mean, you don't want to fudge the numbers whenever you're doing good accounting, but you don't want to do it here. You fudge the numbers on this side, you may be surprised at what you see on the next. Ask yourself a few simple questions. How do you, how do you see yourself? What's your primary identity? If someone says, who are you? What would the functional answer be? Don't say, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ. What would it be? What would it be? I'm an accountant, literally an accountant. I'm a mother, I'm a father. Those are all aspects of who you are, but who are you ultimately? That's good spiritual auditing, your primary identity. Do you believe, can you say it with your mouth and believe it in your heart that you are a slave of a master who is your king? And does your life reflect that? That a king reigns over you a good and glorious king, and that you are a servant, you are a slave to that king, and therefore a slave to righteousness. Does your life evidence that? 
Do you go to him daily? By he is your king. Do you go to him daily in prayer and in the word to say, Lord, what is thy will for me today? We assume we know what God wants us to do each day. That may be a really bad assumption. There are basic things that you probably need to do each day to stay in line with scripture. But do you seek his face through prayer? Do you go to him through his word? Do you come to brothers and sisters and say, what is the Lord's bidding in my life for the next year or next 10 years? Are you engaged in that process? And then when you hear God clearly speak to you through his word, better question, do you do it? Do you do what you know you're supposed to do? Are you surrounding yourselves with brothers and sisters who help you chart your course? Right, that you help you actually make it to the end? Or are you a solo Christian? If you're a solo Christian and you do most of your week and life alone apart from other Christians, then I can tell you you're already off track. You're already off track because God has given brothers and sisters the body of Christ to help us stay the course, to keep our feet on that narrow path. Do you complain a lot? In your mouth or in your heart? Silently saying, I deserve more. Do you complain like that? Are you dissatisfied? Do you covet a lot? Coveting friends, coveting money, coveting stuff. Servants don't covet. Servants serve, right? Servants don't complain. Servants love their masters and want to do the bidding of the master above all else. Does your faith in Jesus Christ define your life? Or is it an add-on? I think it's a really good one for us, especially in the Western world and with Western Christianity. Is is your Christianity a Sunday, maybe Wednesday, small group routine? Or does it define who you are? That you are a servant of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does your faith drive you in how you live and how you speak, how you spend your time, the shows you watch, the books you read, the people you engage with? And how about your work, my beloved? This, I think this is one of the better ways to audit ourselves. Your work for the Lord. Look at verse 24 again. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor, a, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, the same, same word, finish the race, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So remember, Paul's ministry was a ministry as a missionary to the Gentiles. He got that job description directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ, when he met him in Damascus. He said in verse 24, his job is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to declare, to preach, to teach that sinful man can be saved by grace through faith in the Son. This was Paul's work. So Paul desired, above comfort, above worldly ambition, above power in a local church. It was Paul's desire to finish his course, to finish his race, to do the ministry that his master and king had given him to do. Now here's maybe the shocking truth for you. If you do not know this, I pray you would listen with all your might. Every Christian from the day of Pentecost until this very hour has been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry. Do you know that? You say, well, that, that, that was Paul. He was an apostle, you know, Christ came to him. That's not me. Uh, you're right. You're, you, well, yeah, he didn't come to you like he came to Paul. If he did, then you're in trouble. You're not a missionary of the Gentiles, as Paul was, necessarily. But 
you have a ministry. You have a ministry given to you by God himself. Ephesians 2.10, for we are what? We are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, say it with me, good works. What kind of good works? Works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should do them. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel, and every Christian has work to do that God has prepared for them to do. So let me close on this. Do you know what your work is? Do you, do you know what it is? Paul's was to be a missionary to the Gentiles. What work has God called and equipped you to do? Now, this, listen, this is not the same as being holy. Your work is not to be holy. All Christians are to be holy as God is holy. This also is not necessarily your station in life. People say, well, my, my, my job is to be a, a husband or a wife or a mother or a father. That's your station in life. That's true. And if God's called you, you're to do that. This work that we're talking about here, the work that Paul was talking about, was the work given to him by God to do. And God has given you work to do too. Ministry work to do. Do you know it? Do you know it? I was asked last year by someone how long I plan to continue pastoring. And I said, I have no say in the matter. I, I mean that sincerely. I have no say in the matter. I, I will pastor as long as the Spirit calls and leads me to pastor. I will preach as long as the Spirit calls me to preach. And when he says stop, I'll stop. But we don't have these, we don't have, we don't have these decisions. We think that way, right? That we have all these decisions. The Spirit leads us to do what God has called and equipped us to do. So if you don't know what your work is, I would begin today, this week, spend as much time as you need to in prayer and in the word of God and surrounded by brothers and sisters. Bring them alongside and say, hey, I, I want to know. I want to know. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. If he told Paul to be a Gentile to the, a missionary of the Gentiles, and he told me to do something, he did. That's glorious. That's glorious. So we want to know, do not stop seeking that work until you know what it is, and then what? <clears throat> and then do it. So you say, well, you know what? I, mm, pastor, truthful confession, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not doing it. What if you're in that second category? Why, why aren't you doing it? Right? Are, are you not asking and taking a right account of your new life in Christ? Do you not see that if you are united with Christ, that you are a servant in the Lord. Servants do what? What their masters say. Servants obey their masters if we are true servants. Have you, maybe you foolishly convinced yourself to live like Greece and the song and that you believe that living as you want to live is better than the life that God has called you to live. Happier, more joyful. That is a lie. Maybe you believe that God is so gracious and so merciful he does not care if you engage in the work and use the gifts that he's given you to do. Maybe you say, you know what? God is so gracious, it doesn't matter. Maybe you think it's okay that I can neglect my work and I can neglect my gifts. Worse yet, you may, maybe you're saying, I, not only am I not, not serving Christ and neglecting the gifts, I'm using them for my own advantage. I'm going to serve myself. The number of times that we've seen stories over the years now of these men and women who are gifted by God with a voice, and they're raised in the church, and they sing in a gospel choir, and then you see them out living a life of the world in music, completely forsaking Christ. That gift was given to sing to God. That voice was given that they would glorify God, and yet now they become 
an American Idol or something like that. All right, I'm going to close Matthew 25. You ready? I want you to listen with all your might. If you do not know what your gift is, seek it. If you know what it is but you're not doing it, do it. Because the consequences of neglecting the work of the God, the work God's given us, are dire. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is telling the parable of the talents. The talent was amount of money. And he was talking to disciples about how a master, Jesus Christ is our master, how a master gave three workers, three servants, certain amount of money. Five talents, two talents, and one talent. The master goes away and then he comes back and he wants them to give an account of their fidelity to do the work that he had called them to do. Listen, this begins at uh, Matthew 25, verse 20. And he who had received, the servant who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. So he had taken what the Lord had given him, and he had multiplied it. He had used the gifts for the glory of his master. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Listen now. Enter into the joy of your master. Mm, Beautiful, isn't it? Verse 22. And he also, who had the two talents, the man who had the two talents, he came and he said, I have more, I have two talents more. You gave me two, I have two talents more. Verse 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. So twice, first the five, then the two, faithful servants to the Lord, doing the work God called them to do, and they're both entering into the joy of the master. And then we get to the third servant. This is the servant you do not want to be. You ready? He who had received the one talent came forward, and he said, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And he gave him back the gift, one talent. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seed. Verse 27, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own, what, what was my own with interest. Now verse 28, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he who will have an abundance but from the one who has not, that's the last servant, even what he has will be taken from him. And here's the most catastrophic aspect of this teaching. In case you think it's okay for you to neglect the work God has given you to do and the talents and the gifts God has given you to use. Verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. His end is destruction. That's sobering, my beloved. That's the understanding we have of Christ as our master and king and we as his servants. My beloved, if it is your desire to be a faithful servant of the Lord, then I'm, I'm going to encourage you to shake off the foolishness of Western Christianity. Shake it off entirely. Shake, it off, shake off that Christianity that truly today looks more like a Greece musical where we live as though true freedom comes from being what we feel rather than being constrained by the Spirit of God. True freedom Set your face, I would encourage you, to the eternal Jerusalem. Do a deep dive 
Do a spiritual accounting of your life this week. Don't wait. You don't know if you're going to make it till next Sunday. This week, evaluate your life. Ask God to cause your heart in every way and in every shape to be constrained by the Holy Spirit. And then, like Paul, do what? Die to yourself, take up your cross, that's your ministry, and follow Jesus. It's not complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Do the work God has called and equipped you to do, no matter how costly or how dangerous or how painful it might be. And then, my friends, and only then will the lyrics of that song be true. We can be who we are. Not unconstrained, foolishly free people, but faithful servants of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us the goodness of being constrained by your Spirit. Cause us right now to have a right spiritual accounting of who we were before you saved us, who we are now as sons and daughters in your kingdom, and who we will be when you come again in glory. I ask, Lord, that you would reveal to those here who do not know the work you've given them to do, show them that work, and then compel them by your Spirit to do that work. Whatever that work might be, Father, And for those who know and are not doing, I pray that they would hear the parable of the talents this morning. They would not neglect and be like that last servant who gave the talent back to the king when he came. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, for all of us, cause us to collectively work together for the kingdom. Make us humble servants, Lord. Cause us to speak the truth to one another in love. And by your grace and mercy, cause us to open our mouths and proclaim to the gospel, the gospel to this lost world in which we live. Father, we desire for you to be magnified in this place. Do it for your glory, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.